Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Calmers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So my guest today is Wade Davis. Beyond that, I'm not exactly sure what to tell you because it's difficult to describe this guy and his body of work. Um, he basically, you know, suffice to say, this is the reason why I am obsessed with anthropologists, where you have this exceptionally compelling mix of, you know, intellectual scholarly disposition with actually going out there and doing amazing shit. Wade is the kind of guy who, when you're doing an interview with him, is like, well, you know, we got to cap this as an hour because the... Colombian and like you know the Colombians I've got a call with them and they uh you know like it's 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 stuff that you don't hear from other people um and so yeah let's see uh he started off as an ethnobotanist sort of you know the intersection of of culture and plants basically going into the Amazon and you know looking at the pharmacological potential of different plants and that sort of stuff um, and then the thing that sort of put him on the map was this book, The Serpent and the Rainbow, which is about the phenomenon of zombies in Haitian voodoo, which uh, is this very fascinating topic that has received a ton of controversy. You know, you can look it up if you've, if you've never seen uh, or heard of these things. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's incredible stuff. And basically the, the amazing thing about Wade is that, you know, he's just gone boom, 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 boom from all of this stuff, starting off very academic, you know, undergrad and PhD at Harvard to like, okay, no, I'm going to make my own thing of it. And then going into not only writing books, but doing television and photography and all of this interesting stuff. And it's very unique, uh, very hands-on, very in the world. And, uh, yeah, you know, he's done, he's done so much cool stuff, which we, which we talk about, um, a subset of which at length here. And, um, I guess the, the thing that really stood out to me was this phrase he used, um, intellectual entrepreneur and this, this idea that, well, you know, one thing you can do if you want to make a living out of ideas, you can go and become a professor. That's fine. You know, obviously he's done stuff like that. I believe he currently is a professor at, the University of British Columbia. Um, but, you know, there's also maybe this more direct market approach where you say, well, what is the thing that I'm interested in now? How do I create something that other people can vicariously experience that fascination through me? And, you know, the classic example of this would be to write a book. That's the sort of, you know, uh, that is the that's the main way to do that. But he's found all sorts of different ways to do that for whatever he is interested in. And that's the sort of phrase that he used to describe that way of engaging with a career. And it's certainly the thing that I aspire to do because, uh, you know, I don't think that I will follow a traditional academic path. I think that uh, intellectual entrepreneur is closer to the thing that I want to do, that I want to be you know, finding ways to engage the stuff that I'm interested in and make a career out of that in a way that's less straightforward than just, you know, okay, go to graduate school, get a job at a university and, you know, uh, vie for tenure. So I think he's really inspirational on that front. He's done so much cool stuff. It's amazing to hear him talk. 
uh, just, you know, mostly this interview is just letting him go down whichever paths he finds most interesting at the time. And it's hugely rewarding. So without any further ado, here is Wade Davis. The first thing that I usually like to ask about is uh, where did you grow up? Well, I actually grew up in Montreal, and it's it's a it is a part of the story. I had never thought about it until some years ago when I was giving these CBC Massey lectures, which is a very prestigious lecture um, um, series in in Canada, where the the Massey College at University of Toronto, in collaboration with the CBC, selects a kind of public intellectual to give five talks in five different cities to live audiences. But then those talks are recorded and broadcast three times nationally on the, on CBC radio. So it's rather like being given 15 hours of, of uh, prime time on NPR. So it's an extraordinary platform. And I was in Montreal uh, for one of the talks and I was asked by a, a journalist, a question I'd never gotten before is how did you become an anthropologist? And I had a kind of a glib um, answer. And, and that was a quite truthful answer that when I was at Harvard, my first year, I spent most of my time getting into trouble um, through radical politics. It's amazing I wasn't thrown out, not of the university, but also of the country. And the deadline for determining your major was the next day, and I hadn't given a thought to it. And I happened to be in the Peabody Museum of Ethnology for the first time. And with my mind still sort of whirling from those dioramas, um, uh, I walked out in the sunshine and I ran into a friend of mine. I said, Stuart, what are you going to declare as your major tomorrow? And he said, anthropology. And I said, what's that? And he said, you read about Indians. And like Forrest Gump, I said, that'll do. And that's literally how I signed on as a student of anthropology. But I think there's a deeper story which came to, to mind when I was asked that question in Montreal. And, and the truth of the matter is, although my family was from the West, uh, my grandfather was a small a doctor in a small lead zinc mining town in the Canadian Rockies. But I grew up in Montreal because my father was transferred there for a while. And it was the time of the two solitudes when English and French uh, were at odds with each other, to say the least. And I lived in an English suburb that was plunked like a carbuncle in the back of an old traditional Francophone village on the edge of the St. Lawrence River that went back to the 18th century. And there was literally a boulevard, Cartier Boulevard, which divided the two communities. And on the corner of that boulevard was a small little shop where my mom would send me to get cigarettes or milk. And I remember even as a boy of six, uh, sitting on a stoop there and looking across that boulevard and thinking, wow, you know, across this one road is another religion, another another language, another way of life itself. and and. Uh, I wanted to cross that road, and I did, um, ignoring all the ghosts of bigotry and, and bias that weren't in my family, but were in my community. And I guess in a way, I've been crossing that road ever since. And then the second big, um, I think, catalyst was the fact that my mother, who was a humble but determined Canadian woman, uh, somehow got in her head in 1967 that Spanish was a language of the future in North America. And she worked all year as a secretary in an elementary public school to raise enough money to allow me to join a group of affluent schoolboys that a master was going to take to Cali, Colombia in the summer of 1968. And it's hard to remember, Cody, but, you know, in 1968, the vast majority of North Americans had never been in a commercial flight, right? And the South American destination was terribly exotic. Uh, and at 14, I was the youngest of the group and the most fortunate because whereas the others 
uh, were 16 and sometimes 17, um, they were billeted with affluent families in in, in in the city and spent a sort of sweltering season in the streets of a major metropolitan center, whereas I, by chance, was billeted with a more modest family high up in the mountains at the edge of trails that re reached west to the Pacific. And I never saw any other Canadian lads all summer long for 10, 11 weeks, whatever it was. And uh, whereas many of them succumbed to what the Colombians call mamitis, which is homesickness, I, by contrast, um, felt that I had finally found home. And I think that was really a, a really catalytic moment in my life. You know, there was something about the intensity of Latin life, the 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 um, um, the, the patience for the fragility of the human spirit, the openness of the culture, the warmth of the culture that just sort of enveloped me like a protective cloak. And I felt like this is where I belong. Yeah, I look forward to uh, connecting that <laughs> up with your with your latest work. Uh, and but uh, I guess um, I guess my my follow up to that is maybe kind of a reframing of some of the stuff that you've thought. But my, my question is, which came first, an interest in academics or an interest in exploration? You know, I, th I think, Cody, one of the biggest um, lies, frankly, that is perpetrated by our educational system is a notion that life is linear, that you go from A to B, and if you skip C and D, you never get to the rest of the alphabet. And of course, anyone who's lived an interesting life knows that it's made up of these serendipitous moments where you're just given a choice. And what you want to cultivate in yourself as a young person is that, as Joseph Campbell famously said, that inner compass. So you're not listening to the voices of either your peers, your parents, or the society itself as you make those choices. Now, you may not always make the right one, but the critical thing is to own the choice because the greatest creative challenge of anyone is to be the architect of their life. And invariably, in old age, bitterness comes to those who look back on a life of decisions imposed upon them, whereas contentment comes to those who have actually been the creators of their own lives. And it takes time, you know, it takes time to envision something that by definition has never existed before. And that is a full dimensions of a, of a kind of inspired and, and um, a creative life. So one of my messages to all young people is, is never compromise um, and be patient, give your destiny time to find you. I mean, I, uh, my, my career was built not by deliberate um, uh, uh, direction, but by reaction. I learned very early on that to escape the constraints of the bourgeois world in which I was born, you know, I had Baudelaire's disease, you know, horror of home. And to do so, I simply discovered that the best thing I could do is say yes to every opportunity. And that taught me to be an opportunist, not in the sense of a schemer, but it taught me to put myself in the way of opportunities where there's, you know, in situations where there was no choice but success. And you suddenly find yourself uh, capable of doing things that were beyond your imaginings a few short weeks before. Yet another misconception that young people grow up with is the notion that people are born creative, you know, that creativity exists in the abstract. You know, how many times, Cody, did you hear in school, oh, John's so creative, he plays really great guitar. No, no, John is John is creative because he plays guitar. In other words, in other words, creativity is not the motivation of action, it's a consequence of action. And as Jim Whitaker, who was the first American to summit Everest, um, wonderfully tells young people, you know, if you're not if you're not living on the edge when you're young, you're taking up too much space. And another of my good friends, Terence McKenna, used to always say that, you know, the great lesson of life, 
the lesson of all the sages is you get to the precipice of the cliff and you leap. And the amazing thing is you don't land on stone, you land on a feather bed. The world exists to lift you up, not to put you down. And so, you know, my message to young people is always to recognize that, you know, uh, pessimism is an indulgence, despair is an insult to the imagination, orthodoxy is the enemy of invention. Um, do what needs to be done, what you want to do, and only then ask whether it was possible, let alone permissible. And, and, and again, <clears throat> a career or a vocation is not something you put on yourself like a cloak. It's something that builds around you step by step, choice by choice. Nothing is beneath you. Nothing is a waste of time unless you make it so. You know, a taxi cab driver in Manhattan can have as much to teach you as a wandering sadhu in India, or let alone a professor at Harvard. You know, it's all about how you embrace the world. And uh, when I look back on my life, and I think most people could say this about their own lives, every single kind of um, fulcrum in your life or every kind of, you know, major shift, there's always been someone saying, don't do it. I mean, in my case, you grew up in British Columbia, which is where I graduated from high school. You know, why do you have to go to Harvard? What's wrong with UBC? You know, oh, wait a minute. You came to Harvard to be a lawyer. What's this anthropology thing? Wait a minute. You're quite a precocious anthropologist. What's this botany thing? Wait a minute. You just, you know, spent three years in the Amazon collecting plants and you want to go, what? Voodoo? Haiti? Wait a minute. You've just written the two best-selling books ever in the history on a voodoo and you want to go, what? leave that all behind and become an activist in the forest of Borneo. Wait a minute. You almost saved the forest of the Penan. You've got a Hollywood movie coming out about Bruno Manziger and you're going to do what? Write a biography of who we've never heard of. Wait a minute. One river is one of the greatest literary biographies we've heard. And you're going to do what? You're going where, you know, it's every single thing I've done. It's been like that. And I think that's, that's common. You know, um, I've never, uh, I've never, I've never, tried to scheme my way through life, you know, um, I think that's a huge mistake. You know, if you, you have to follow your passion, if, if you're passionate about something, you'll be good at it and you'll find a way to monetize that. Um, and, and, uh, if you try to scheme your way or compromise your way through life, you know, I mean, if you think, for example, if I just drive taxi cab for a few years, I'll be able to chill out or work for the post office. I'll get to be 50. I read something once where this guy in Canada had made this sort of deliberate choice during the hippie era to have a kind of a mellow job. And he became a postman. And, and uh, you know, he, he figured, well, I'll just deliver the post. I'll be outside. And, you know, and according to the union, by the time I get to be 50, I'll be able to retire on a really great income uh, a pension and and then i'll really have fun i'll go everywhere and do everything i wanted to do well of course the story is and the moral of the story is he gets to be 50 and the government changes all the rules and there is no pension that he you know i mean so and and then he gets furious at the government for breaking their promise but the truth of the matter is he broke his promise to himself when he compromised in that way at the very beginning right you want to be a postman be a postman, but be a good one and be grateful for it. You know, in other words, I think that's that's such an important uh, message to me. I mean, I, I grew up in a uh, in a world where there was no creative impulse around me. There were no books in the home, really, no films being watched, no music being heard, no plays being um, uh, visited. You know, where, you know, um, uh, and you know, you just you just you just do it step by step. You know, and just keep that one word in your vocabulary. Yes. So there's a thousand things we could uh, take take from from that and and go down the particular road that you, you brought up there. But I guess one thing that I want to touch on with that is that 
something that I think a lot about is that you've got this tension between interest, let's call it, the curiosity that you're describing of like, okay, I'm gravitating towards this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with that. I'm going to say yes to this. Um, and the, the tension uh, with that is call it professionalization right saying okay well now i'm going down the the path of anthropologist now i'm getting my phd in this and i have to be um you know i have to present myself to my peers to my colleagues in a way that uh, uh, that's that's the thing you see that's the whole problem people have you know i've spent my entire life looking forward always whereas most i never look back over my shoulder and unfortunately that's the only direction that most people ever see you know, I've never listened to the conventions of my society. I mean, I don't know. Uh, it's not that I have any kind of a particular strength of character, but the, 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 the one thing I've got going for me is a visceral uh, inability to compromise, you know, and uh, I don't mean that in a, in a precious way. I mean, one, but one of the, you know, one of the things uh, uh, my sister always says about me is that when they, you know, there's been a number of biographical pieces or films done about my work, and uh, she says they always miss how tough you were. And what she means by that is not physically tough, uh, but rather that no one at the age of 23 had a greater ambition, uh, not for money and not for fame, but to know what my destiny was. How was I going to take this huge ball of energy and direct it for, uh, for the good? Because I was always driven by a sense of social justice. Um, and I think that's an important point. I mean, I wouldn't be anywhere if I hadn't had my focus on trying to do what was right. Uh, this is a, a really important point, I think. Uh, you know, Hemingway said, uh, you know, anyone who thinks that writing is easy is either a bad writer or a liar, and, and books are hard. And I've, I've always found that you needed to have some kind of deeper um, passion at work to sustain yourself during what could be a 12-year writing project. I mean, in the case of my first book, on voodoo, I was just completely, once I embraced the wonder of, of that religious worldview, I was just so deeply offended that it had been reduced to caricature. You know, we name the great religions of the world, we leave out an entire subcontinent of Africa. And, and it's not an accident that we do that, of course, it's rooted in, 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 in centuries of, of, of racism. And, uh, and so that became, I became almost an evangelist for, for voodoo. And by the same token with my book, One River, it was conceived, you know, literally as I gave the eulogy when Tim Plowman died of AIDS. Um, and, and we held a ceremony at the Field Museum and Professor Schultes was too ill to attend and he sent a tape. And Tim, for him, was more than a protege or a student. He was like a son. And he ended with those famous words from Hamlet, good night, sweet prince and flights of angels, sing thee to thy rest. And there was not a dry eye in that vast hall. He was such a beloved figure. And I had watched, you know, so many men at that time, it was 1988, 89, so many friends die of AIDS. Um, uh, and it's difficult for young generation to remember how horrible that time was, both the, 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 the uh, both the persecution of, of, of victims of this horrid disease, but also the sheer morbidity and mortality of it. Uh, a fatal disease, you know, I mean, you know, a death sentence to get the diagnosis at that time. And uh, I just said to myself, I'm going to write a book that's going to put this man, Tim Plowman and Schultes in their lineage. And I, I very much had in mind, in fact, that, that here, you know, at a time when, when, although none of this is in the book, but at a time when, you know, gay people were being pilloried, and blamed for their their agonies. Um, here was this incredible guy, Tim Plowman, the most 
charismatic, handsome, dashing uh, adventurer I've ever met uh, and will ever meet. Uh, and yet there he was, he happened to be gay. And so, I mean, I mean, Bob Colicello, who, you know, writes for Vanity Fair and used to be part of that Warhol scene. Bob always said to me that he wanted me to write a book about a love affair between a heterosexual, which was I, and Tim. And I never really did that because the book became about Schultes and it was about it was a different kind of story. But all my books have had that quality into the silence. You know, I wanted people to know what my grandfather went through the, you know, you know, in the white faces of the dead in the trenches of the Great War. You know, my grandfather's life was absolutely as a surgeon at the front for four years, his life was absolutely ruined by that war. And my father's life was literally ruined by Hitler's war. And I wanted the world to know what that generation, both generations of, of men had endured. So in other words, I, I, I've always found, and, and of course, as an anthropologist, it, 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 it's, um, it's all about, you know, my desire to let people know that every culture's got something to say. Each deserves to be heard, just as none is a monopoly on the route to the divine. The other peoples of the world aren't failed attempts at being modern. You know, every culture is a unique answer to a fundamental question. What does it mean to be human and alive? And I wanted people to know that of the 7,000 languages spoken on earth, half aren't being taught to children. So, you know, I mean, these things are actually what drive me and, and end up, you know, distilled in the books. And so I think it's important to cultivate not just a passion for what you enjoy doing, but also a certain sense of, of mission. And there's one other thing I would add to that, which is that the best advice I ever got from my father, who was not a religious man, but he, he believed in good and evil, and he was right. And we have this idea in Christianity that, you know, um, you know we give, give form to light and darkness and the fallen archangel who becomes a devil and the Christ child, the son of God. And we try to set them up in mortal combat, all with the hope that good always vanquishes evil. And it never happens, does it? And so we end up terribly disappointed. Uh, whereas in the, in, the, in, in the Buddhist faith or in the Vedic uh, scriptures um, of Hinduism, they, they don't have that notion at all. I mean, if, for example, if you were a monk in France in the 15th century or 14th century, and you had the audacity to ask the obvious question, if, if God's all powerful, why does he allow evil to exist in the universe? You were burned um, as a heretic. Uh, but when Lord Krishna was asked that very same question, if God's all-powerful, why does he allow evil in the universe? Lord Krishna said, to thicken the plot. In other words, in the East, you have this notion of good and evil dancing with each other in eternity. And what my father used to say to me is, there's good and evil in the world, son. Take your pick and get on with it. And what he was saying is that you'll never win. You know, it's like the path of the pilgrim is not a destination. It's a state of mind. Uh, if you expect in this kind of moralistic, which is what the left always collapses into, and why so much, so much of leftist ideology ends in tyranny, is because they wanted to end that Vietnam War, as I desperately did that first year at Harvard. And I was prepared to do almost anything to indulge hatred, even violence, to accomplish what I thought was that pure end. But in the end, I just became like the violence itself. And that was a great lesson for me. And I think that that uh, one of the ways that I, at 67, have retained my kind of zest for life, if you will, I mean, you know, always looking ahead, thinking of the next project, never looking back, um, as energetic and as committed to the environment and social justice as I've ever been in my life, is because I don't expect to win, ever. 
And if I win a few things, great. If I lose a few things, great. It won't make any difference because I'm still on that path. And that's what Peter Matheson said when he wrote, meant, I think, when he wrote that, you know, anyone who thinks they can change the world is both wrong and dangerous. And he had in mind people like Mao and 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 Hitler and, and Stalin who, who, you know, they all, Paul Pot, who, brother number one, he certainly thought he was making a better Cambodia, even if it meant the death of half of his people. And so that kind of um, humility uh, that is inherent in, in the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism is something that really resonates with me. And it therefore keeps me going in, in, in I think, in a very positive way. So what, uh, what do you think uh, is important for people like myself who are pursuing their PhDs today to sort of keep in mind to try and, uh, you know, embody the, the the principles and the drive and the interest and that sort of stuff that you're talking about, right? Well, you know, I think one of the, one of the things that was really fortunate for me, Cody, is that I, um, at Harvard, ha where I got my PhD, had two extraordinary mentors. On the one hand, Richard Evans Schultes, the greatest botanical explorer of the 20th century, a man of action indeed, who inspired by those deeds. Um, but the thing about Schultes, even though on the face of it, he was a remarkably conservative man, uh, politically, he was a real libertarian, um, not only on issues of human drug use, but more importantly, on, in his uh, basic humanity in recognizing, for example, um, the the genius of the Amazonian um, uh, healers. You know, Schultes was the first person really to draw attention to the extraordinary uh, knowledge uh, of these natural historians who are the shaman of the Northwest Amazon. And, and uh, wherever he went in the forest, he was, in a sense, very often the first outsider of the indigenous people of the Northwest Amazon in his 12 years of exploration, the first outsider they had ever met who wasn't there to exploit their labor, rape their daughters, transform their religious uh, world as the missionaries attempted to do. He was a solitary student of plants. Um, one, one friend of mine went to Colombia for the first time, and he met a colleague of Schultes in Bogota, and Professor Hidrogo said to Andy, if you ever get in trouble in that country, a country, by the way, the size of France, the Colombian Amazon, just mention his name. In that land, Schultes is God. And he, he was. And so that was one figure. And the other, of course, was David Mayberry Lewis, the great Americanist who, who founded Cultural Survival. And, and David, enchanted with the wonder of ideas and the depth of his compassion, he was just an incredible humanist. And, and those two men inspired me to understand that at a very early stage, the link between both biological and cultural diversity, and, and we take that for a gra granted now, but I'll share one anecdote. The, 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 on, when the Dalai Lama, the 14th Dalai Lama, made his first tour of North America in 1979, he ended up at Harvard, his last talk. And that same night, Ed Wilson, the famous biologist, was in, introducing Norman Myers, who had written a book called The Sinking Ark, the first book, one of the first books to anticipate the biodiversity crisis. And naturally, all the faculty and kids were across the way to listen to his holiness. And in apologizing publicly to Myers for the sparse audience in the lecture hall kitty corner to the other one, uh, he said, and I quote, if even Harvard students can't get their priorities right and they'd rather be away across the way, listen to that religious kook, 
you know how far we've got to go to change the public's opinion in general about biodiversity. And, you know, he'd be the first to apologize for those and regret those words today. But that is indicative of the chasm that existed then between social scientists and natural scientists, whereby the 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 natural scientists and the conservation biologists tended to look at people as the problem, indigenous people in particular. And of course, the anthropologists couldn't abide the misanthropic elitism of the naturalists. And I probably was the only student that night running back and forth between both um, uh, 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 talks. But from the earliest age then, I understood that the same forces affecting biological diversity were also eroding cultural diversity. And those issues were so powerful to me that it seemed uh, inconceivable that one wouldn't want to share that wisdom with the world at large. And so looking outward toward the public was a natural uh, thing for me to do. Um, I was born a public scholar, you know, in, in, in that sense. And and um, one of the things I look back on now, and this is what I say to all of my graduate students, you know, one of the uh, another misconception laid upon graduate students is that you're going to get your PhD and become a professor. Well, that might have been true in the 1950s or 1960s, but at the place like UBC, where I'm on the faculty, uh, upwards of 70% of successful PhDs don't enter the academic world. So the question we have to be asking ourselves, and we never do, is what are we doing for that majority, right? You know, how are we giving them the skill sets will, that will allow them to monetize that knowledge in a meaningful way? How do we make them entrepreneurs of knowledge? And everything that I was able to do to, um, you know, be an independent scholar uh, public speaking, popular books, films, documentaries, c- consulting, a whole range of things, photography, all of those skills I began to cultivate in graduate school because Professor Schultes did not see those as distractions, but as compliments to my core academic mission. You know, it's incredible, Cody. I have graduate students, graduate students, bright, wonderful young scholars who have I, I have seen them break down in tears when asked to do a 15-minute TED Talk uh, in a small seminar surrounded by a half dozen of their friends and peers. Now, you tell me, Cody, how an educational system that charges families as it does and, and, and demands that young people spend this many years, as you know, in this system of pedagogy, how do you get a person getting to fourth year in graduate school having never been taught public speaking? It's, it's, it's scandalous. And yet that happens all the time. And, 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 and there's a kind of a conceit in the academic world still that reaching out and sharing information with the public is somehow to be a less than, than um, accomplished scholar. You know, it's interesting. Uh, again, I never, I never draw that kind of distinction. You know, one of my favorite journalists and writers, David Halberstam, was one who wrote the best and the brightest and a bunch of wonderful books, um, was once asked if he ever thought of getting a PhD and he turned to the person. He said, what are you talking about? Every one of my books has five PhDs. And, you know, a book like mine, like Into the Silence, which tells the story of George Mallory and the early British expeditions on Everest in 21 and 22 and 24 against the backdrop of the great war uh you know that book took 12 years to write um for that one book i purchased 600 books either myself or my research assistant visited 57 archives 
um, you know, primary documents. And, and we were able, for example, to uh, set out and accomplish something quite remarkable. We found out where each of the 26 men that were the main protagonists in the story had literally been every single day of the four years and four months of the Great War. And yet, because that book is written in a literary style, and that book incidentally won the Samuel Johnson Prize, a top uh, award for literary nonfiction in the English language, uh, that's not seen as being an academic book. And so it's not really, you know, it, 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 it's somehow, uh, you know, and, and a lot of this is, as you know, if you're a graduate student, is, is that these, these academic disciplines are secret societies and you must learn the language to become a member of the society. And then you sort of, you know, you've, you've earned your right to be in that society by the secret language you speak, which is generally kind of, especially in the social sciences, sort of uh, gobbledygook and, and, and um, you know, and, and sort of uh, or, or kind of, you know, you know, language of orthodoxy or whatever it is. But, but you know, the, 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 the idea of trying to communicate with the public has no recognition whatsoever. In fact, it's often seen to be... Um, uh, uh, a detriment to one's uh, advancement in the academy. And I, I think that's just, given that the public funds the universities and given that the issues that we say we care about are so fundamental from climate change to uh, the erosion of cultural diversity to, to you know, the, the, the collapse of our biological systems, um, if we don't reach out to the public, you know, how can we possibly... Um, expect social change. I mean, you know, you, you know, we we live in a world where where people can go through university uh, and and not even know the formula of photosynthesis. I mean, every politician should be unable to run, disqualified from office, if he or she can't recite the formula of life. You know, but 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 one of the reasons that society remains so scientifically illiterate is because scientists tend to be such terrible teachers. And our university systems are not geared um, to actually teach. I mean, if you actually look at uh, the rewards for an academic faculty member, um, they are remarkably, um, uh, uh, you know, teaching itself is so undervalued. I mean, I think on we have a thing at UBC where, you know, established tenured faculty have to sort of get so many points a year and something about a small income increase and i once sort of looked at it carefully and i realized that i mean for me teaching undergraduates is the reason i accepted a job um but for in general you get about as you get you know for teaching 80 kids for a whole semester you were awarded roughly the same points as for publishing an op-ed in the newspaper it's kind of outrageous right and uh you know i i i, I think that that's why you know teaching i think needs to be a front and center in every university setting. Yeah. So one one of the things you mentioned was that um, you know when you were getting started off, it was a very different uh, atmosphere in academia than it is today. Um, so you know, for me, I'm a PhD student. I've got my research. Maybe it works out um, in terms of you know getting a tenure track faculty position, but statistically, it's probably not going to. So uh, you know, me personally, I'm trying to do all these other things to broaden my uh, you know, my reach, my abilities, like th these different ways of, of, of relating to knowledge as, uh, you know, what you're talking about, um, uh, cr creating a career out of it. So I'm curious, do you have a sense of what you would do now today if you were in a position well, I, like I, me? I, 
Well, you know, Cody, I think it's we always look to the past, you know, and, and you know, any any illusions. I mean, I got my Ph.D. in the 19, let's see, 80, 86, I guess I got my Ph.D. That was, if anything, as I mean, you can't imagine how bad a time that was to get a job in the academic world. Just think of it demographically. The universities had exploded uh, literally in construction in the 1950s and 60s hired all those faculty. And when I graduated in 1986, all those faculty were still active. Uh, I mean, academic jobs were, were few and far between. And I remember, uh, you, you know, I, I became a writer because of necessity. I had been doing this research in Haiti that was backed by an unknown benefactor. And if I needed $10,000 by Wednesday, I just had to call New York by Monday. And I never knew who the person was. And then suddenly the intellectual foundation of that project who had established the foundation to support the project, Nathan Klein, died during routine heart surgery. And um, and the benefactor who I had uh, by that point learned his identity, David Merrick, the Broadway producer, had a debilitating stroke 24 hours later or something. So I went from being flushed with money to having none. And I applied for the standard academic agencies, you know, National Science Foundation and so on. But they took so damn long to decide that I walked off the street to a literary agent in London and uh, said I wanted to write a book uh, uh, about zombies. And uh, I walked out with a book contract, in effect. Uh, and, uh, and then I used the contract to finish my research and um, uh, and uh, then I had to write a book and I hadn't written anything but scientific letters in my life, uh, letters and scientific papers in my life. So I, I tried, I wrote a couple of chapters that uh, I sent into Simon & Schuster. They were rejected and I left the university and I uh, had malaria and hepatitis at the same time. A friend came and got me out of Haiti. I was sort of very sick. I'd been working with the secret societies in the nighttime and uh, it was quite surreal. And uh, I then had to write a book. So I taught myself to write. I, I sat by in a slave cabin and I had all my books, uh, Hemingway for Dialogue, Isaac Dennison for Landscape, Gerald, um, uh, um, uh, Lawrence Terrell for kind of exotic uh, characters in an, uh, an exotic land, if you will. Uh, Alejo Carpentier, you know, or T. E. Lawrence, um, Seven Pillars of Wisdom. And I never copied or plagiarized, obviously, but whenever I was stuck, I had a good story to tell. I just had to find a way to tell it. So uh, I would just open these masters at randomly and just read through. And I kind of just uh, by osmosis learned how to write. And I wrote The Serpent of the Rainbow in seven months. It was edited in, in a day. And it sold half a million copies. So suddenly I was a writer. And then I I, I thought of um, going back to the academic world when I got my PhD. And I actually competed for a postdoc at New York Botanical Garden, which was the best postdoc available in my field. And I was lucky enough to get the job. And I hadn't at any point asked them what the salary was going to be. I was too Canadian to do that. And when finally I was uh, offered the post, um, and the salary came up, my friend said, I think we can get you 19. And I said, 19 what? My wife was pregnant. I was going to live in New York City on $19,000 a year. I, I, and I, I just made half a million dollars by writing a book. And I said, Mickey, I love you, but you made a career choice for me. And that's when I decided to become a writer. And, and probably for 30 years, I, I suspect I may have been the most uh, generously compensated anthropologist in the world without having any salary job. 
But again, it's because I became an entrepreneur of knowledge and I did all the things that would normally get you um, uh, uh, even disrespected, you know, uh, whether it was lecturing on private jet trips going around the world or, uh, you know, doing writing popular books, writing essays for outside magazine, whatever it took. Uh, and, and bit by bit, I built up a repertoire in all of these areas. You know, I, I, um, I, I made myself a photographer by not by studying photography as much as doing photography. I became a filmmaker by making films. Uh, you know, you just uh, and and gradually, and this is again, you know, back to the message for youth is that you you look at someone as I did when I was your age, looking up at someone like me, and I, you know, we all had our heroes, as you guys all have your heroes. And, and I would look up at a Gary Snyder, or I'd look up at um, uh, Dylan Ripley, the head of the Smithsonian, or I'd look up at uh, Schultes himself, and I'd think, oh, my God, how can I ever get there? Well, the answer, of course, is that those people had a 40 or 50-year head start on me, you know, and of course I got there, you know. But again, you know, you have to, when you're young, be patient and realizing that you're only in the process of building up step-by-step uh, layer by layer, if you will, all the 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 surfaces of a life, um, and the most important thing is is to not compromise, and not listen to the voices of orthodoxy. The voices of orthodoxy are designed to create banality, by definition. That's what orthodoxy means. I mean, the, mi- the minute you ever hear someone say you should do this, you better ask why, and for what purpose, and to serve whose interests. And I've just, you know, I mean, it, it hasn't necessarily always been, um, uh, I, I suppose, a, 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 a smooth passage through life for me because you always attract distractors, right? And and uh, and you have a choice. You can circle the wagons and try to fight off these people, or you can leave them fighting in your way because you move on to something completely different, which is what I've always learned to do. You know, if you can imagine, there are people quibbling on the internet, I gather, uh, 40 years after I last worked in Haiti, arguing as to whether or not I even went to Haiti, where I spent a couple, you know, you know, but let them do that, you know, but, you know, that's light years ago for me. Yeah. Uh, so uh, The Servant and the Rainbow sort of put you on the map. And like you said, it was a bigger success than you could have imagined. And it gave you some flexibility going forward. So um What's what was next after that? Was it immediately obvious to you that you're like, okay, I'm going to do film, I'm going to do more books, I'm going to do photography, I'm going to make this big enterprise? What's it look no, like? No, no, of point? course, no. You know, in retrospect, in in retrospect, the 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 when I look back on those early years after the success of Surfing the Rainbow, it's not like I had any, any illusions that I would replicate that success, and that success came with with challenges. I mean, you know, I, you know, when I, when, you know, I, I sold, I had railed in the book against the Pulp Fiction and, and B horror movies that had reduced voodoo to caricature. And when they sought the rights to my book, the producers promised me Peter Weir, who had made the year of living dangerously, which was a perfect template for what my actual experience had been in Haiti. I mean, I was in Haiti during the revolution that overthrew baby doc. I was, uh, you know, my main informant, Erard Simon, was the emperor of the secret society where the Ministry of Interior minister came to try to negotiate a settlement after the first riots in Gonaive in 1984. 
uh, I was, you know, I was used as a front in, in, a, in a positive sense. So, I mean, I, I had lived that adventure. It was real. And so I thought Peter Weir would be a fantastic director. But of course, once it was signed away, it ends up in, in Wes Craven's hands and it comes out as a horror movie completely beyond my my control. And yet naturally, I, I was held accountable for that and responsible for that in, in, and, uh, in a negative way. So, you know, these things happen and you move on. Um, uh, but, but at the time I didn't certainly anticipate another success like that. I mean, it, I had a little bit of a financial cushion, uh, that allowed me to think carefully of what I wanted to do next. And I, and I didn't scheme my way into what I wanted to do next. I decided to write a book. I mean, I was always doing things on the side. Every time I wrote a major book, I wrote little books, you know, I mean, I, uh, while I was writing into the silence, I think I published five other books or something like that, you know, um, and made a bunch of films. I was always, you know, I mean, one thing I always say to young people, uh, you know, they always want to have a, find a job, right? How often have you heard that? Well, they should be careful with that desire because the word job comes from the medieval French word gobert, meaning to devour. My father had a job all of his life. He called it the grind. And I used to think as a little boy that every day he got a little smaller when he came home from work. And I think he actually did. And yet the word work has a more... Um, a more hopeful origin in the Anglo-Saxon route to create and 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 uh, and build in a sense. And so I always say to young people, do everything you can in life to never have a job, but work harder than anyone you know. And one of the things you learn, which is very helpful as a self-employed person, is to never mistake activity for results. Um, when I wrote Into the Silence, I didn't take a weekend off in 12 years. But of course, my work was my life. So it wasn't like I was living through some kind of, you know, drudgery. I was flying around the world with the National Geographic. I was doing river trips and explorations and making films, having a wonderful time. So there was no separation between work time and 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 personal time. And, and I incorporated my family into that readily because we had a fishing lodge that I, that I bought that I went to religiously during the summers as a kind of a well the family could drink from for the rest of the year and whenever possible i would take one or all of my family members on these adventures with me so the kids for example grew up all over the world you know in a in a, in a very kind of open multicultural scene um and uh and uh so so you know you, you i never calculated i just said okay what what do i want to do now and of course the next book was the book one river which in retrospect was a real roll of the dice. After all, it involved six years of effort. Um, it meant that for six years, I didn't have a major book out there. Um, there was no certainty whatsoever that a book about this obscure botanist in the Amazon in the 1940s and a travel account of his two young acolytes in the 1970s um, would necessarily um, you know, be, be be successful, but you can't think of that. You just have to do. And uh, when One River came out, it was very well received. And and um, the Spanish translation, El Rio, um, you know, became more than a book in Colombia. It became a map of dreams for two generations of young people who couldn't um, travel in their own country because of the conflict. And in fact, the National Library in Bogota, in selecting the first 25 of the first 200 books to be selected uh, in commemoration of the 200th anniversary of the country in 2021 
uh, one river or El Rio was selected as one of the top 25 uh, influential books in the history of the country. But I didn't know that would happen when I wrote it. I just wrote it. Yeah, so sort of to go along that uh, path and to wrap up and also talk about your most recent book, Magdalena, River of Dreams, A Story of Columbia, I guess I want to ask you about travel. Um, So I think most people have this sense that, you know, it's good for you and that broadens your horizons as a person. Uh, But, you know, it's hard to put your finger on what that is. And you have made a career, a life, uh, an intellectual enterprise, all of the above out of travel. So I guess I'm wondering... Uh, particularly with an eye to your your love of lifelong love affair with with Columbia, yeah. What are your thoughts on travel? How how does one do it more meaningfully uh, in in the broader sense? Well, I you know I mean I think it was Paul Thoreau who said you know that the, the tourist doesn't know where he's been and the traveler doesn't know where they're going, and you know you can look at my my resume and and, and think that I've built a career out of travel and I have traveled a great many places but in almost all of my travels they've been um laden by expectations um and dates of return uh in order to finish that film or submit that manuscript or make that report um and real travel i've really in a certain sense even though you know there, when i was exploring residents of the national geographic for 13 years and almost every year i probably was in 50 or 60 countries um but in a real traveling sense, I've only really traveled once. And that was when I was 20, when I left for South America uh, with a one-way ticket, um, a small backpack of clothes, uh, two books, Lawrence's Taxonomy of Vascular Plants and Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass, with no expectations and no plans whatsoever, save a promise not to return to North America until Richard Nixon was no longer U.S. president. And I had no plans whatsoever. And and my life just unfolded on a daily basis in in this extraordinary uh, journey of life. It was like a Bildungsroman. It was a coming of age story, which is recounted in the book One River. Um, But, you know, that is that is that is travel as as um, not as destination, but a state of mind, you know, where you you know, if you the the real traveler uh, does not expect to come back the same. You know, it's sort of a little bit like, you know, a lot of those travels we were doing were in pursuit of curious plants. You know, Schultes was the world's expert on hallucinogenic plants. And Tim and I, as we studied the divine leaf of immortality, the coca, the notorious source of cocaine in all of those months in South America, we were also, as Schultes always quipped, you know, eating our way through South America. We were young, footloose and free. And I was 20 and Tim was 30. He seemed terribly old to me. But if we found a plant that we thought was curious, we just ate it and saw what happened. Uh, you do that when you're young. And um, I, re- you know, I, I remember at that time when my parents would uh, get a hint that we were taking psychedelics, they'd say, you know, don't take these things. You'll never come back the same. But our parents, bless them, just didn't understand that that was the entire bloody point was not to come back the same, right? And that's the nature of travel, isn't it? You don't want to come back the same. You know, the tourist comes back the same, having forgotten where they've been. The traveler sets off, not knowing where they're going, certain that they'll come back a new person. Yeah, incredible. And that, uh, that uh, yeah, is an amazing way to, uh, yeah, to think about that. 
Um, do you want to get going now, or do you want to uh, say a little bit more about uh, connecting that back with um, Magdalena and your and your more? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it, uh, an interesting thing along the, the the kind of the theme of this conversation, Cody, is the, the, again back to this concept of serendipity. You know, people say, "Well, how do you get an idea for a book?" Well. You know, the serpent and the rainbow was because I got this assignment to to and then uh, to, to Haiti. Uh, I told you that I, I mentioned that you know it was when I, in grief at Tim's um, funeral service, I got the idea for One River. Into the silence came to me at Pitanringbo, where I was standing on ground higher than any mountain in Europe, looking up to the Kenshung face of Everest, two vertical miles of ice rising to the South Pole from the eastern side, the remote side of the mountain, uh, with my friend Dan Taylor, who in his inimitable way began to speak of these Englishmen in tweeds at, who read Shakespeare to each other in the snow at 23,000 feet, and I became hooked. I had no idea the project would take 12 years to come to fruition as it did. Um, by the same token, you know, I was the, the book One River or El Rio, as I said, had a big influence on young people in Colombia, and it prompted one Colombian company to fund botanists and, and journalists to do beautiful illustrated books on each of the five major regions of Colombia, which, of course, is the biologically and geographically and ecologically by far the most diverse country in the, in the world. And these books were to be. Um, not sold, but gifted to every library to send a message to that generation of young people that theirs wasn't a country of violence and war, but of diversity and natural bounty unparalleled on the planet. And they asked me to um, come down and help promote one of those editions on the Amazon. And the Colombian Amazon is the size of France. Um, and around lunch one day, I just happened to say, well, we've covered the landscape, the Choco, the Cordillera, the Eastern Plains, the Llanos, the Amazonas, Caribbean coastal plain. Well, why don't we do the rivers? I just quipped that, you know, I just joke almost. And, and I said, they said, great, we'll do it. I said, well, let's start with the Magdalena, which is a kind of Mississippi of Columbia. Well, that, that kind of serendipitous moment resulted in a five-year project in which I visited every community in the um, the drainage of the Rio Magdalena, which is, as I say, the, you know, like the Mississippi, it's a corridor of commerce, but also the fountain of culture, the repository of uh, poetry and music and prayer and literature. And traveling the length of the river, it was kind of, again, serendipity. It was like sociology as serendipity. I would turn up in a community and stick around until I found someone who had something to say that the world needed to hear. And that, as Hemingway said, is the key to storytelling. And, and so the book is really the voices of those people uh, told with a great deal of empathy and love. You know, Colombia is not the nation of our caricatures. It's a land of colores y cariño that has endured terrible agonies, agonies that have all been caused by the international consumption of cocaine. Without the cocaine trade, the civil war that racked Colombia for 50 years would never have happened. Uh, and so ultimate responsibility for the agonies of Colombia, 260,000 dead, 7 million displaced, 100,000 disappeared, lies with everybody you've ever met, Cody, who's either, you know, uh, used and bought illicit cocaine, and every government that has facilitated that black market trade by prohibiting the drug while doing nothing meaningful to curb its distribution. The last year of the FARC, uh, before the peace agreement was signed in Cartagena, the FARC were down to 6,000 cadre, mostly kids, in search of a meal. 
and yet they made $600 million through extortion and drug trafficking. Well, if you give me um, the Boy Scouts of, uh, you know, Beverly Hills and 600 million US dollars, I can wreak havoc in Southern California. And, you know, at the height of Escobar's power, he was putting 80 tons of coke into America every month, generating $17 million a day. The accountants back in Medellin were budgeting $1,000 US just to buy each week elastic bands to wrap the money in. Think about that. And and so, you know, we all have a responsibility to Colombia. Um, and, and uh, you know, a, a way of thinking about that is imagine if Canada had patterns of drug consumption across boards and barrooms of the nation, uh, laws that facilitated a black market trade, but we did nothing to curb that trade such that 85 million Americans were forced to flee their homes. Well, that is exactly what happened in Colombia. And think of what Colombia has done since the peace agreement, a peace agreement that has a price tag of $45 billion. Even as oil prices have collapsed, Colombia's greatest source of foreign revenue. But whereas the United States, as recently as last October, still had 525 kids separated from their families in jails in the along the U.S.-Mexican border, uh, Colombia, without fanfare, absorbed 2 million Venezuelan refugees. And they didn't turn them back, they welcomed them. They gave them housing, they gave them food, they educated their kids, they gave the families medical care. And now, as of a couple of weeks ago, President Duque has given all of those people legal status to work within Colombia, not because Colombia can really afford to do that, but because it's the right thing to do. So anyone who tries to pillory Colombia should do a little bit of reading. And Magdalena is a good start. You know, Hector Abad, one of the great Colombian writers, one of the great writers of Latin America, called it a love letter to the country. And in many ways it is. It doesn't shy away from what has happened in a violent half century, but explains it with empathy, even as it reveals the full wonder of the Colombian experience. You know, magical realism uh, is often seen as Colombia's great gift to Latin American literature. Uh, but Gabo, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, was a journalist, uh, an observer all of his life. He, he just wrote about what he saw. He just happened to um, uh, live in a land where heaven and earth converge on a regular basis to reveal glimpses of the divine. Incredible. Wade, thank you for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Cody. Take care. Send me a link when you can, okay? Will do. Bye. Okay. Bye, son. Bye.